Today I want to be in Isaiah 6, Isaiah chapter 6. Um, two weeks ago, not last weekend, but the Sunday before that, I just really sensed uh, within our church almost an urgency on my part to do something a little different. I, I sensed a, a discouragement that was across um, many different families through our church, uh, a discouragement that was in my own heart. And um, therefore, my goal last Sunday was really to have a, just an encouraging message. Um, we celebrated the Lord's, Lord's Supper for the first time in three months together as a church. And it really was a joy-filled day in my estimation. I enjoyed last weekend. Uh, if you're new, I just want to be clear. We believe in verse-by-verse expositional preaching, not topical preaching. Uh, every now and then we'll address a topic. Uh, but verse-by-verse preaching, we uh, don't pick and choose our favorite passages and skip hard passages. What we do is we pick a book uh, for different reasons. We'll pick a book, sometimes good reasons, sometimes not as spiritual reasons, as we'll talk about in a second here. But um, we'll pick a book. We walk through it verse by verse, and that leads us to go through some really hard passages. We don't skip over them. We go through the book verse by verse, explaining the text. My goal every Sunday morning when I get up here, even when I go off and do something different, is to let Scripture preach. My goal really is to try to get out of the way of Scripture. In fact, if you've been around my preaching long enough, you realize I don't even tell that many stories. And if I do tell a story or if I give an analogy, I usually try to find one in Scripture because I don't want it to be about me. I don't want to get in the way of Scripture. I want Scripture to be heard Sunday morning. That's why we go verse by verse, and we've been doing that for over 30 years as a church. In fact, the last two years, we've gone through 1 John. We spent some some time going through the Psalms, and then we jumped into Ephesians. And both these books are largely about love and unity. Love and unity. In fact... It's funny because last February, I think it was right around that time, I was wondering as a pastor, is the congregation getting sick of these topics? Because it's been like two years on unity, unity, unity. We're one body, one family, one, one church, one, one temple. Right? Is the church getting sick of these, these topics? Love, love, love. We are called to love one another, to, to lay down our preferences, to lay down our opinions, to love one another. I was thinking last February, maybe it's just too much. We've gone over this topic too much, and then the coronavirus hit. We didn't meet for two months. Our fellowship was attacked. Then these riots came. And there was strong, divisive topics that have been going through the church ever since. Right? Strong opinions on things that really, a lot of these things are gray areas, to be honest. Some things, there's not just a real clear answer on what's right and what's wrong. Strong opinions and our unity was threatened as a church. In fact, I think as a church in America, our unity is threatened. Spent two years on unity. You know what I believe? I believe God was preparing us for today. The time when the devil would be using his schemes and ideologies to attack our fellowship and unity. When the church would have to make really hard decisions and they would be rightfully questioned. 
God knew our unity would be tested in this time, and he was preparing us, Country Oaks, as a church. It's amazing when I think back about it. Like, you know, it's funny. I picked Ephesians. Okay, so here's... Maybe you won't trust me as a pastor after I tell you this. I picked Ephesians, the book, because I just wanted to learn my Greek a little bit better. That was the deep spiritual reason why I picked Ephesians. There was a commentary that I was really excited to go through because it digged into the Greek, and I'm like, I really want to go through Ephesians. I think God had a better reason for us to be in Ephesians, to prepare us for today. All this to say, we strongly believe in expositional preaching, but I'm also learning as a pastor that sometimes you need to address the needs of the church. We need to be encouraged as a church right now. So the next three sermons, we'll be back in Ephesians, I promise. We're not going to skip any verses in Ephesians unless Jesus comes back before then, which is a good possibility. Um, we're we're going to be back in Ephesians, and we're going to tackle some of the hard topics that are coming up. But I really feel like we need to be encouraged. So the next three Sundays, we're going to look at three different visions of God. Three different visions of God in scriptures. And I have two goals in doing this. The first one is just to encourage us to get our mind off temporal things, off earthly things, off of politics, off of the news, off of this virus, off of everything else that's around us. To get our minds off that and to look at the eternal. To get a grand vision of who God is. So that's my first goal, is to just encourage us. But the second goal, I hope, is to unite us. Listen, we are brothers and sisters. We worship a holy, good, glorious God. We are brothers and sisters in a family. You know what that means? We're stuck with each other. We are. You could leave a church, but you know what? Those people are going to be in in eternity with you for eternity. (laughs) We're stuck with each other. And that's a good thing. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. This is a very familiar verse and and passage. The next two visions that we're going to go over are less familiar, but this gives us a good foundation of who God is. Isaiah 6, verse 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I just want to stop right there because we need to know the context. What is Isaiah saying here? It had been familiar to his his, uh, readers. There was political unrest in this year. Imagine what it's going to be like when you say, in in year 2020, everyone's going to be like, yeah, I know that year. (laughs) Right? It's the same thing. In the year that King Uzziah died, there was this political uncertainty that was was going on. A national uncertainty was Isaiah. In fact, in many ways, it parallels where we're at today. These were uncertain times in Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah was probably a young man. We know that his ministry lasted from this point to probably around 36 years or further, at least that long. So he had to be somewhat young at this point. His childhood, he, en- he enjoyed peace and prosperity. He grew up in a country where there was peace and prosperity. There wasn't very many threats during the time of King Uzziah. The, the Egyptians who were the south of them were really weak and and to the north of them was the Assyrians but they were occupied with other things and so Israel prospered Judah prospered and the nation grew and there was peace that all changed at the end of King Uzziah's reign 
In fact, 2 Chronicles 26.3 says this, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. That is a long time for a king to reign. Verse 4, he says this, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a righteous king. A king that was probably very beloved. God blessed him with peace and prosperity. But the end of Uzziah's life, he grew proud. And in fact, it's, it's interesting. It's one of, it's a, it's a, his, his story is different than a lot of the kings. He started off righteous, and the very end of his life, he disobeyed God. In fact, he tried to tell the priest what to do in the temple, which wasn't where he was supposed to be. And he broke out with leprosy. And he died eventually from it. Uzziah was a righteous king, but his death was tragic, and it left this uncertain time in the land of Israel, in the land of Judah. Verse 1 said, in the, it says, In the year of King Uzziah died, the year that King Uzziah died, this righteous king that was king over, over 50 years and had this, this tragic death, Judah is now falling into idolatry. Assyria now is occupied with Israel and Judah and is coming to attack. They're bringing a threat, a real threat, a major threat of, of torture and death. For the first time in Isaiah's life, he's living in uncertainty, political and national uncertainty. My guess is that he was anxious and worried, and he went to the temple to find peace. He went to the temple to pray. And verse 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Just think about that. Think how beautiful that one line is, the two parts of that one line. Right? Political uncertainty, right? This national uncertainty. In the year that King Uzziah died, this uncertainty, guess who's still on his throne? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. I saw tells us that this is a vision that he had. The Lord, if you look at it, is lowercase. So the L is capital, but O-R-D is in lowercase letters, meaning that this is not the Hebrew word Yahweh. And the Hebrew word Yahweh is being replaced by the word Lord. It's all capital letters. L-O-R-D are all capitalized. But when the title of God is used, Lord Adonai, when that word is used, it's capital L in lowercase letters. This is Lord Adonai. This is the title of the Lord. Isaiah is saying, I saw the Lord. I saw the, the Adonai sitting upon the throne. This word means sovereign one. Isaiah is saying, God, the sovereign one, is sitting on the throne. He's sovereign over governments. He's sovereign over Israel. He's sovereign over the church. He's sovereign over everything. Therefore, Lord is appropriate. Isaiah is saying, I saw the sovereign one, Adonai, sitting on the throne the year that King Uzziah died. The year of uncertainty, God is still on his throne. He is sovereign over everything. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Right? This, this Lord, this Adonai, the, the, this God that we worship is high and lifted up, meaning he's above everything. He transcends everything. The train of his robe fills the temple. I want you to notice something in all these visions. This vision, 
starting with, it, it, it's, there's no clear description of God. He's too glorious. He's too bright. Isaiah can't even look at God. He's too indescribable to have a description. Instead, Isaiah describes, and the other visions we'll see, describes the things around God. Now just think about this. He's describing his clothing, his robe. Even his robe is glorious. It fills the whole temple. Verse 2, it says this, above him. Again, he's not describing God. He can't describe him. He's too indescribable. Instead, he says, above him. This is what's above God. Above him stood the seraphim, or these angelic beings, these awesome angels. Each had six wings, with two to cover their face, with two to cover their feet, with two he flew. They're sin, sinless, angelic beings that have to hide their face from God. They had six wings, two wings to fly, two wings to cover their face, two wings to cover their feet. God gave them wings to cover their face when he made them. This is what R.C. Sproul says. The seraphim are not sinful human beings burdened with impure hearts. They're angelic beings. They're still creatures. And even in their lofty status as associates of the heavenly hosts, it is necessary for them to shield their eyes from the direct gaze of the face of God. They are fearfully and wonderfully made, equipped by their creator with a special pair of wings to cover their face from his grand presence. They also have two wings just to cover their feet, which is a sign of humility. Let's just think about this for a second. These are angels that haven't sinned, that haven't rebelled against God, and they have to hide their face and cover their feet in the presence of God. What do you think our response is going to be when we see God face to face for the first time? Man who has sinned, man who has rebelled, man who has worshipped everything else in this world but God himself. I'm going to even make a claim that we as Christians will even fall in terror when we see God. As we'll see in the further versions, visions that come. What do you think our reactions are going to be? Look at verse 3. And one, this is one of these awesome angels, and one of one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. In Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. For example, Jesus would say truly before he would say something important, but then he would say truly, truly before he said something really important. It's a way of emphasizing to repeat yourself. And if something is repeated three times, it is to be elevated to the superlative level, the highest level, the most holy, the holiest, the standard of holiness. It's an interesting side note, and I think Christians need to know this. Only once in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Not God's mercy, not God's wrath, not God's justice, not God's grace, not even God's love. Listen, 
God is love, but God is holy, holy, holy. Verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The voice of God was thunderous. It shook the foundations of the temple, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, I know, of us are, I know most of us are familiar with this vision of God, but as I read through it again, I've preached on this once, and I read through it again, that, that idea of smoke kind of stood out to me, and I never really noticed it till this time. Why smoke? I looked up Psalms 97.1, and it says this, The Lord reigns. He's sovereign. Not evil governments, not kings, not nations. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. It's a good thing that God reigns. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. God reigns. Be encouraged because God is a good God. But then it says this in verse 2, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations, foundation of his throne. God is good, meaning God is righteousness and justice. And clouds and darkness, and I would say smoke too, are the foundations that are around his throne. Clouds and darkness in the Old Testament, I believe, point to judgment. God is just and righteous, therefore he will judge sinners. And if you're not saved this morning, if you're listening online, if you're not saved, that should terrify you. In fact, Jesus said the very same thing. This is not just an Old Testament thing, this is a New Testament thing. Matthew 1028 says this, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear, fear this virus. Don't fear the government. They can only kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell forever. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Listen to what it says in Genesis 15:12. And the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Why? Well, verse 13 says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, God's presence brought dreadful and great darkness. Deuteronomy 4.11, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire and of the, of the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness, clouds, and gloom. That's God's presence. Joel 2.1 Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Amos 5.20 is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it? Amos 8, 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darkness, or darken the earth in broad daylight. 
or Zephaniah 1.14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Darkness in the Old Testament is God's judgment on earth. You know, sometimes I just cringe when I hear Christians talk about God. Sometimes I I cringe when I hear preachers preach about God and, and try to make God out to be some kind of big teddy bear in the sky that you go to and hug when you scrape your knee. I get it. And we all should rest in the fact that God is love. But God is holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah experienced the holiness of God, he crumbled. He was ruined. In fact, look at verse 5. And I said, woe is me. Woe is a word of judgment in Scripture. I want you to think of the significance of this, because Isaiah is a prophet, and this is his calling into being a prophet. God's going to tell him to go and and proclaim judgment on Israel, to go and proclaim judgment on Jerusalem, to go and proclaim judgment on the nations. And he starts by proclaiming judgment on himself. Isaiah saw perfection face-to-face. He saw holiness face-to-face and realized he fell horribly short. You know, it's easy to fool yourself that, that you're a good person when you look at other sinful people. If you ask the average person why they're going to heaven, they'll say, well, it's because I'm a pretty good person. You know why that is? It's because they're judging themselves with other evil people. You won't do that when you see God face to face. When you see perfection and holiness face to face, we will all join Isaiah saying, Woe is me. Verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say, For I am ruined, or, or for I am undone. Those are good translations, because that word lost means unraveled. Isaiah had no argument, no justification, no defense, no, I'm a good person. In one moment, his self-esteem and self-righteousness was shattered. He was naked and exposed and found guilty. Verse 5, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, this is interesting. Why lips? Of all the things he could have said, not thoughts, a man of unclean thoughts, not actions, I'm a man of unclean actions, not flesh, not eyes, but lips. Why lips? Because what comes out of our mouth, what comes out of our lips, comes from the heart. Lips expose the heart. And James tells us lips will start a forest fire. You want unity in a church? 
Be careful what you use your lips, how you use your lips. It will destroy. It will burn down. It will expose the sinfulness in your own heart. Isaiah was saying, I'm a man with an unclean heart. And the evidence is what comes out of my mouth. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, I am doomed. You might be asking at this point, I think this is why people are intimidated by the Old Testament. Where is this God of love that we've been told about? Where is his love? Well, I think you find it in verse 6 and 7. Look at 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. Burnt lips symbolize Isaiah's sins being paid for or atoned for. And this is vivid imagery. Remember last week we talked about the lamb being slaughtered and the drain, or the blood drained because it was vivid imagery of what needed to take place for the forgiveness of sins. Well, this is the same. Think of your lips. Think of taking a hot, red-hot coal and putting them on your lips. Lips are one of the most sensitive places on the human body. The pain that Isaiah felt when that happened. The visual smoke that came up the smell, the smell of burnt flesh. This analogy is saying, Isaiah, mercy is not cheap. Forgiveness is not cheap. And it's the other misconception that we hear in Christianity. God will just forgive you. He can't just forgive you. If he wants to be just. It's like a judge having a murderer come murder three people and go, you know what, I'm a, I'm a forgiving judge, you're off the hook. That's not a good judge. God is the judge of the universe. He can't just let sin go without it being paid for. So here's another dilemma. We saw this last week. How can a lamb take the sins of a man? Right? How can that pay for the sins of a man? How can, how can burnt lips pay for the, the sins of Isaiah when the penalty, the wages of sin is death, and that's the second death. That's the eternal death. That's hell, God's wrath for eternity. How do burnt lips pay for that? Well, they don't. Burnt lips do not pay an eternal punishment. Well, so how could God forgive Isaiah, atone for his sins then? How could you say your sins are atoned for, for with just burnt lips? Well, I think Isaiah gives us a hint. If you would, turn to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. This is what it says. Behold, my servant... In these passages, you see the servant that's talked about. It's kind of a mysterious servant that's coming. And this is what it says about this servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. What does that sound like? 
Isaiah 6, 1, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. It's Isaiah's vision. You better believe that that was an unforgettable vision for him to say, this servant will be high and lifted up. It wasn't by accident. Behold, my servant shall, be, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And, and many were astonished at you. Why were many astonished at this servant? Because of his holiness? Because of his greatness? Because of his justice or glory? No, look what it says. Because he appeared so marred beyond human semblance. In other words, he was beaten so badly he didn't look human. And people were amazed. And for his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You want to know the love of God? God the Son came to earth in human form and died on the cross for our sins to pay the price, to atone for our sins so that we can be forgiven and God still could be just. That's love. He came to be marred beyond human sinless. In fact, Isaiah goes on. Turn to Isaiah 53, verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says this. Surely he has bore our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That means we all are sinners. And the Lord laid on him the servant that's coming, the suffering servant, the iniquities of us all. Isaiah gets it. Burnt lips, just like the death of a lamb in the Old Testament, did nothing but point to the real atonement for sin. They pointed to the suffering servant that's coming. The one that would be crushed because of our sins so that we can be forgiven. It pointed to Jesus. And Isaiah spends his ministry pointing people to this suffering servant that's coming. Listen, you can't understand the love of God unless you understand the holiness of God. That's what the church is missing. You want to emphasize the love of God without talking about the holiness of God. Well, you can't. You can't understand the love of God without understanding the holiness of God. And it's the love of God that unites us. It's why we're here every Sunday. It's why we worship this great God. Also should be what motivates us. The love of God motivates us to love one another. To sacrifice for one another. To lay down our opinions. To be careful how we use our lips about one another. Behind each other's backs. What should motivate us to love one another, to unite us as a body, to be followers of Christ as Lord, to follow him no matter what, no matter what the cost. 
Turn back to Isaiah 6, verse 8. Isaiah has this grand vision of God and is terrified. And then he has this experience of his sins being atoned for and he experienced the grace and mercy of God. And this is what happens in verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us, us being the Trinity? Then I said, this is Isaiah, Here I am, send me. The fear and terror is gone. It's changed to boldness and confidence. And in fact, I read into this, and hopefully this is true, almost a giddiness and joyfulness. I'll go. Desire to serve this great, awesome, holy God of love. No matter what the cost. You better believe it costs. Legend has it, and I think this is true because Hebrews 11 alludes to it, that Isaiah was put in a hollowed log and sawed in half at the end of his calling. Martyred. The people he was called to proclaim truth to, just so you know, didn't like what he was saying. But he said, here I am, send me. Isaiah was sent out as a prophet of God to proclaim truth, to pronounce judgment, and to call out evil on an evil society, to call out an evil government. There's many kings that didn't like Isaiah. I want to end with this persecution is coming, it's coming. The reason it's coming is because we live in an evil society. Our society is demanding that the church not meet to save lives while killing one million babies a year. One million human lives a year. Ripped out of the mother's womb limb by limb. That's hypocrisy. Hitler killed 12 million Jews. We, the United States, have killed well over 60 million babies. It's enough. It's time for the church to stand up and boldly proclaim truth. We won't make friends as we do it. Isaiah didn't make friends. We need to call out hypocrisy. Listen, we're called to honor our government, and we've been preaching that from day one of this virus. We're called to pray for our government. We've been praying for salvation of those in leadership from this pulpit. We're called to do our best to live at peace with all men. We're also called to proclaim truth and obey God no matter what the cost. Listen, we are living in a holocaust. 
church is arguing about a virus that 99% of people that will get it will live. Well, one out of five babies in California will be violently killed a year. You know, I just think if we, if, if it was true that the churches during the, the time of Hitler were arguing about a virus that 99% of people lived, and that's what they were talking about while the Jews were getting shipped off to be burned to death, how we would look back at that church. That's how we're going to be looked at. But here's the good news. God is still on the throne. He is sovereign. He is just, he is holy, and he is merciful. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died in this time of uncertainty and evil, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up. And God asked Isaiah, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. I hope that's us. Let's boldly speak the truth. We're getting to the place that will be unpopular to follow God. We're not here to make, be in a popularity contest. In fact, everywhere the apostles went, there was riots. We are here to proclaim truth. I pray that our church is bold in doing that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, be with us, Lord, in this time. Lord, God, I know... Your judgment is coming on our nation and our society, Lord. God, we pray for mercy. We pray for revival. We pray for your grace, Lord. We pray, pray that you change people's hearts, that you change our leadership's heart, Lord. We pray for salvation of those in government, Lord. That they see the hypocrisy, Lord. That they see the death of millions, and call it what it is. God, I pray for the church that we stand up and speak boldly the truth. That we're not afraid, Lord. Be with us, God. Make Isaiah's in this culture that are so motivated by your love, by your grace, by what you did on the cross for us, Lord, that will go out and, and speak truth no matter what, Lord, no matter what the cost. I pray that's true for Country Oaks, Lord. Be with us in this time. May you be glorified. In your son's name, amen.